Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today I'm going to cover 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 through 11. Our context is this, at the very end of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul has discussed with the Thessalonians something that he had not done before, which is the doctrine concerning of Jesus' return at the end of time and the resurrection of the saints and who's coming first. What about the saints who are still alive when he comes? What about the ones who have died when he comes? Did the ones who died before the alive saints of Jesus is coming, are they are the dead ones going to be, miss out on something because they died first? And, Jesus, and Paul says, no, actually, they're going to be resurrected first, and then the alive saints are going to be changed, as he says in 1 Corinthians, in the twinkling of an eye. And so now we go to 1 Thessalonians 5.1, and Paul's going to switch from Jesus' coming at the end of the world to his coming in AD 70. Now, that switch is not immediately apparent. I'm going to make arguments for it. And in fact, futurists tend to say, no, Paul is still talking about the end of the world in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. I'm going to show you that that's problematic. And I'm also going to give you arguments on why the shift was made by Paul. It's not a ad hoc, irrational type shift out of, out of nowhere. There was a reason for why he shifted. So let's start in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. About the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. Now, why was there no need to write to the Thessalonians? Well, there's several reasons. Let me just give you a rundown real quick. The most obvious reason is because they already knew about the times and the seasons. And I'm assuming this is AD 70, so they already knew about the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. They knew because of the Olivet Discourse, which I'm sure Paul taught them from or taught them about. It could be they didn't need to have anything written to them because the question was trifling. As John Gill says, well, I don't think the question is trifling. Whether you're talking about 80, 70 coming, judgment coming, you're talking about coming into the world, that's not trifling. So that's not it. Maybe Paul, as Gill suggests, maybe Paul thought that the question involved idle speculation about the what time Jesus is coming, the times of the seasons. Well, I don't think that's idle speculation. If it is, I'm getting ready to engage in some of it right now. Maybe, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, is perhaps Paul said there was nothing needed to be written to the to the Thessalonians is because they already knew no matter what the time was, they were going to be ready. So there's no need to talk to them about being ready for that thief that might come in the night about Jesus coming when nobody knows. I don't think any of that makes any sense. So we're going to assume that the reason that Paul said that you Thessalonians do not need anything to be written to you it's because there was no need because they already knew. This is what Grant says, the commentator Grant. They already knew. Now, if they already knew, that would mean that they, it was about eighty seventy because they obviously didn't know anything about the coming at the end of the world because Paul had to explain it to them at the end of chapter 4. They knew nothing about it. They were obviously in the dark. But we're assuming here it's eighty seventy. That Paul is talking about, and he says, "You don't need to know about it. You don't need you need, you don't need anything. You don't need anything to be written to you about it because you already know." Now, let's go into some arguments as to why there is a shift in First Thessalonians four from a discussion of the end of the world, a shift to First Thessalonians five, when here Paul is talking about the day of the Lord at eighty seventy. Now, I'm going to give you some ar arguments to that effect from Adam Clark the famous 19th century commentator, and Doug Wilson, the current Reformed commentator up in Idaho, I think he is. Well, here's the first argument. Times and seasons that Paul refers to here 
is the same phrase that is used in Acts 1. And in Acts 1, Luke uses the phrase times and seasons to refer to Jesus' return in AD 70. So let's read Acts 1, 6, and 7. So when they had come together, that's the disciples, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods or times and seasons that the Father is set by his own authority. Now here's what Clark says about that. Quote, in the, in the notes, in his notes, on Acts 1, 6, and 7, it has already been shown that the times or seasons, the very same terms which are used here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, these times and seasons refer to the destruction of the Jewish commonwealth, and we may fairly presume that they have the same meaning in this place. Now, of course, that assumes that times and seasons in Acts 1, 6, and 7 refers to AD 70. Well, how do we know that? Well, the disciples have already seen the resurrection. That was a shock to them. They were Before the resurrection, they weren't expecting that. They didn't understand that. Well, they still didn't expect in Acts 1, 6, and 7, which is during the 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they still could not have understood about Jesus staying away from millennia and then returning. They're still thinking about that Jewish kingdom, the Messianic kingdom that they wanted right now. They weren't thinking about 2,000 plus years. And so we have the same phrase, times and seasons, and we can suspect that that means 8070. Well, that's Clark's argument. Here's another argument. This is my argument. Paul says you don't need to have anything written to you about the times and seasons, but they did have to need to have something written to them about the end of time coming. Paul had to set them straight about that in chapter 4. So if 1 Thessalonians 5 is talking about the end of the world coming, why would Paul say you don't need anything to be written to you about that because you already know it? They didn't know it because Paul had to explain it to him in 1 Thessalonians 4 all about it. To me, that's a pretty strong argument. Here's another argument. This is from Doug Wilson. Paul finished at the end of chapter 4 with his end-of-the-world discussion. How do we know that? We'll read the last verse in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, because the dead are going to be raised first, and then the awake, the alive at Jesus' return will be transformed, and all will be gathered up into, to see the Lord returning. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Full stop. That's the end of that little topic. Now I'm going to go on to another topic. Well, Futurists, of course, oppose this switch. They say that Paul is still talking about the coming at the end of the world. One argument they might make is, why would the Thessalonians, or what do the Thessalonians have to do with the destruction of a temple in Jerusalem? They're in Thessalonica in Greece. Why do they care whether the temple gets destroyed in Jerusalem? Why would Paul spend so much time telling them about a destruction coming, a judgment coming that has nothing to do with them? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. Because when the Jerusalem temple went down and Israel is destroyed, that means the Jewish persecution of the Thessalonians would be over with. And that was a big deal. We read in Acts 17.5 about that persecution. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together. This is the Jews of Thessalonica. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them. That's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. They started a riot. They were going to lynch the apostles. And that's the sort of attitude that the Thessalonians were facing in their city. And that would all be over with when the temple was destroyed in 8070. So that is not to say that there's no connection between 8070 destruction in Jerusalem and the Thessalonian situation is not a good argument to say that Paul has not made a shift here to 8070. Another argument that futurists might make 
they might say, hey, why would Paul switch without warning from talking about the end of time coming of Jesus to the 80-70 judgment coming of Jesus? My answer to that is it's a natural segue to go from talking about the final coming to Jesus' judgment coming. It continues with Paul's theme of encouragement. And for, in chapter 4, he's told the Thessalonians that they don't need to worry about the resurrection of, dead, of their dead friends and believers. They don't need to worry about that because of Jesus' final coming. And now, in chapter 5, he tells the alive Thessalonians, you don't need to worry about persecution because judgment is coming on the Jews in Jerusalem. So, it's just, he's, he's talking, he's, and the, 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 thing, the theme that ties together those two chapters is encouragement. Different situations, encouragement for Thessalonian Christians who predeceased their living Thessalonian brethren, and alive Thessalonians who have to deal with, with what's coming in AD 70, or what they have to deal with what's before AD 70, persecution from the Jews. All right, so let's assume then that Paul says you don't need anything to be written to you, Thessalonians, because you already know about this judgment coming in AD 70. How would they know? Olivet Discourse. How would they know about the Olivet Discourse? Well, Luke had a version of it in Luke 20, I think it's Luke, it's Luke 21, and Paul, of course, was with Luke on the second journey before they arrived in, before Paul arrived at Thessalonica, Luke probably stayed behind in Philippi. But anyway, uh, Paul had plenty of opportunity to hear from Luke what Jesus taught about on the Olivet Discourse, and then he could have relayed it to the Thessalonians, and so they were perfectly acquainted of the events going to happen in AD 70. Paul did not need to write to them. Now, what in the Olivet Discourse would be probably taught to the Thessalonians? Things that would teach them that the coming of the Lord would be like a thief in the night. They don't need anything to be written to you because it's going to be come like a thief in the night. That's what Paul mentions in verse 2. Well, in Matthew 24, 42, we read this. Jesus had said this. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44 and 45. This is why you also must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So they would have known already. Now we go to verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now here we assume the day of the Lord is talking about 8070, and you say, but wait a minute, day of the Lord refers to the coming of Jesus at the end of time. That is a myth. That is not true. The day of the Lord is any day of judgment that the Lord might use. It's used, that phrase is used all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you, I'm going to read you one, two, three, four, five places where it refers to judgment, not at the end of the world, but on a particular nation. And that's just five examples out of a ton of other, of other ones. So let me start with Isaiah 13, 6, and we'll see that the day of the Lord refers to judgment on Babylon, not on the whole planet. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 13, 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13:9 Look the day of the Lord is coming cruel with rage and burning anger to make the land or make the earth a desolation and destroy its sinners so that's judgment on Babylon is referred to as the day of the Lord now we have judgment on Egypt referred to as the day of the Lord Jeremiah 46:10 that, that day belongs to the Lord the God of armies a day of vengeance which is the exact phrase by the way that Luke used to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, in Luke 21, he called it days of vengeance. All right, that's vengeance on Egypt. Uh, Ezekiel also talks about the day of the Lord coming on Egypt. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. 
Then we have the day of the Lord as judgment on Israel. This is referring to the judgment on Israel by Babylon in 586 B.C., the famous destruction of that first destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Ezekiel 13.5, You did not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. So you can see that day of the Lord does not necessarily mean the end of time. It just means a day of judgment. And here's the day of judgment in 8070. I had mentioned in verse 2 it says, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord, the Lord will come. That's, that goes along with verse 1. You have no need for me to write you for verse 2, 4, because you know very well. You already know, so there's no need for me to write you. That idea is backed up by Barnes, who says that Paul had taught them when he was when Paul was in Thessalonica founding the church, and he taught them about the day of the Lord. That's what I just mentioned. And here's another, uh, talking about coming as the day of the Lord. How does, uh, or coming as a, excuse me, coming as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. How do thieves in the night come? They come suddenly and without warning. Matthew 24, 27, Olivet Discourse. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, suddenly and without warning. I gave you those many examples of the day of the Lord, referring to judgment days, not necessarily on the whole planet, but on particular nations. I've got a lot of other examples I didn't read to you. I'm going to give you the sites right now. Joel 115, 21, 211, and 314. Amos 5, 18 and 20, Obadiah 1, 15, Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8 and verse 14, and Malachi 4, 5. There's other scriptures that talk about Jesus coming as the thief in the night, using that metaphor. For example, in Revelation 3, 3, Remember, therefore, when you have received and heard it, keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea what hour I will come against you. Now, that refers to 87, if you take a preterist view of Revelation, which I do, because Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He says that in the first verse, and I think the second to the last verse of Revelation in several places in between, and he says the day of the Lord is near. He's talking about 8070, folks. I know that might sound radical to a lot of people, but that's I have no problem with that. Second Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There's the connection of those two, metaphor, those two concepts, day of the Lord and a thief. Peter says on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And people say, well, that refers to the end of the time. I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, a lot of preterists do think that means the end of the world, so that means that's a minority preterist view, or at least a, part, a, a, a view that's not held by all preterists. But John Owen, the famous Puritan theologian, Cambridge, he taught at Cambridge University, 16th century in England, he says that this refers to 8070 because if you take the word elements, the elements that will burn up, it stoicheon, I think it is. That word, that Greek word, everywhere it's used in the scriptures, it's used nine times. It always refers, or in every other passage besides this, Second Peter 3.10, it always refers to law, fundamental principles of something. That's the legal principles of a state. It refers to law. And so... It's not referring to the end of the world. So we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion when we hear day of the Lord, it does not necessarily mean the second coming of Christ. And in this case, it does not. We go to verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says this, When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
And the they there, of course, is talking about the Jews living in Jerusalem when the judgment comes in AD 70. Now, there are some other examples of people on the earth who have acted like this. How about the people in the times of Noah? Peace and security. We're farming and we're carousing and drinking. And what are you guys over there building the big ark for? You're wasting your time. And then sudden destruction comes on them. And that's the main point of the metaphor. It's sudden. The thief in the night comes suddenly when you don't expect it. And that's what happened in Jerusalem because they were in the middle of the Pax Romana. And the next thing you know, they were in the middle of a horrible war that nobody foresaw. In the Roman Empire or in the Jewish nation, nobody saw what was coming. And it was total destruction. Over a million people killed as the city was burnt. And And the whole nation was ravaged by war and bloodshed. Peace and security, then sudden destruction. Like labor pains come on a pregnant woman again, the idea is sudden. The woman's going about, she's having a good time, and all of a sudden, oh, I got labor pains. She doesn't know when those labor pains are coming. No mama ever did. Now, you can't carry that metaphor too far because the pregnant woman at least knows she's going to have a child. These people who are saying peace and security, they think the peace and security is going to last forever. A pregnant woman doesn't think her pregnancy will last forever. So you have to be careful with the metaphor. But the idea is basically this. The woman doesn't know when the childbirth is coming. And the people under judgment don't know when their judgment is coming. It will happen suddenly. And they will not escape. This again is spoken to encourage the Thessalonians who are being persecuted by these nasty Jews. Who are receiving their spiritual and emotional support from Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that's going to be dissolved. Now some people say the point of the woman in labor metaphor is the sharpness and severity of the labor pains. I don't think so. It's suddenness. We have the word sudden right here in this verse, verse 3, then sudden destruction comes on them. Some people say is the inevitableness of the birth is just like the inevitableness of the destruction. Well, that's true, but I don't think that's, I think the main point of this analogy here is how sudden the destruction is going to come. We go to verses 4 and 5 in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brothers, the but is as opposed to the people who are saying peace and security and not worrying about the judgments that's coming, as opposed to them, you, brothers, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or darkness. Now, light and dark are common metaphors. Christians are light. God is light. Evil people are referred to as belonging to the night or darkness. Why? Because people generally do their crimes at night when people can't see them. Now, notice that Paul is talking to Thessalonian brothers. He says, but you brothers are not in the dark. He's talking about real people right then. And he says, you brothers are not in the dark for this day to overtake you. He's talking about you will not be overtaken by this judgment. If he's talking to the Thessalonians back then, that means he expects the judgment to come like a thief in the night sometime before those Thessalonians die. Otherwise, why is he talking to them? He's not talking. He is talking about what Thessalonians then living should do. He was not talking about what Christians 2,000 plus years later should do. He's talking to Thessalonians. He's not talking to me. We can apply it to me, but he's not talking to me. Paul's writing to Thessalonians. He is concerned that Thessalonians then living in his time should not get overtaken by that day. He is not concerned about Christians 2,000 years later that they should not get overtaken by that day. Now, I know that rubs a lot of people raw who are futurists. They, they are so conditioned to think otherwise, but I'm telling you, it doesn't make any sense for Paul to be warning Thessalonians about an event that's going to be happening 2,000 plus years later. It just doesn't make any sense. 
He says, brothers, you are not in the dark. So Christians who are operating in the day will not be surprised like those at night. So in other words, you can be at night and be overtaken suddenly because you don't see the thief coming. Or you can be in the day, broad daylight, you see everything, you know what's happening, and you see Jesus, excuse me, you see the day coming and you can take appropriate action. You'll be ready for it. You won't be in the darkness. There's two ways you can take darkness. You can say that darkness means a darkness of understanding. You don't understand. Or you could say that you're in moral darkness. Well, obviously, Christians are not in either way. You're going to know what's coming. You're going to see the judgment coming. And you know that your redemption is near. Because those persecuting Jews are going to be kaput. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, Paul continues. So then we must not sleep like the rest. The rest being the people who aren't Christians and who don't know that the judgment's coming. We must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. In other words, keep doing the basic Christian disciplines so that you won't be overtaken by this judgment. And of course, it wouldn't be it would, you won't be overtaken by judgment from these persecuting Jews that ran Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town at night, so they had to leave when they started a riot. Those type of people, you, look, be serious, stay awake. You're not going to be hurt by them. You're not going to be asleep. Verse seven. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Drunk people are just as unaware of judgment coming as sleeping people. They don't realize the judgment that's coming. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. That armor of the Christian sounds very similar to what Paul wrote about in Ephesians. Armor of faith, we believe, love, we love everybody else. And the helmet, the hope of salvation. A hope is a confident expectation of salvation. They're going to be delivered from any persecution as long as you stay awake. If you're awake, a sleeping person doesn't have armor on his chest, a helmet on his head. He's sleeping in his pajamas. But an awake person has his armor on. He's ready. Nothing's going to come after him. The persecutors aren't going to get him. We go to verse 9 in 1 Thessalonians 5. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is specifically talking about the Thessalonians. He says God did not appoint us to wrath. It means the wrath is coming on Jerusalem. You're not going to be destroyed when the Jews are destroyed. That's what their fate is, but not us. We're destined to obtain salvation. We are appointed to obtain salvation. Now, that could be spiritual salvation. Or it could be temporal salvation. Either way, we're not going to be taken down by these persecutors who are trying to ruin your life there in Thessalonica. They're the ones that are appointed to wrath, not us. The implication is strong that there were others who were appointed to wrath, as Adam Clark said, and those others, I say, are those who were persecuting the, the Thessalonians. On this subject, there can be no dispute, Clark says. Now, I said that the people who were appointed to wrath were the Jews who were persecuting the Thessalonians. Adam Clark says it could refer to the Jews who made up the Jewish polity destroyed in 87. In other words, the Jews in Jerusalem. It could be that, too, or Clark suggests but denies that it could refer to non-believers in general. God did not appoint us to wrath like he appointed non-believers to wrath. Of course, Adam Clark would say that that doesn't refer to non-believers because he's an Arminian. It just drives Arminians crazy to think that God would actually decide that he's going to put wrath on people. Well, we won't get into that. But now we can make an application to us, even though that Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. He can, we can make the same application to us Christians today. God does not appoint us to wrath. He might chastise us. He might test us to train us. I mean, there's a lot of hard things in this life that he takes us through, really hard things. But the end is our salvation, not our wrath. He does not appoint us to wrath.
I love to use that verse. I use it when I use it. It's a little bit out of context. I say God does not appoint us Christians today to wrath. Paul was not talking about us Christians today. He was talking about the Thessalonians. But it's a reasonable application. First Thessalonians five ten and eleven. Paul continues in the middle of a sentence. Let me pick up the subject here. Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse nine. Lord Jesus Christ verse ten. Who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep. We will live together with him. Now he switches the mutter for a little bit. And he wake or asleep. He's not talking about on the alert or not on the alert. Now he's talking about whether you're dead or alive. So that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead in Christ, we will live together with him. Now he's talking about that in chapter 4. If you're asleep, you get resurrected first. If you're awake, you shortly thereafter get transformed into his likeness in the twinkling of an eye. That, of course, is in 1 Corinthians 15, not in 1 Thessalonians 4, but that's the main topic of the last chapter. It doesn't matter whether you're awake or asleep. You're going to be fine, and you're going to meet Jesus together, and you're going to live together with him. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Why to encourage one another? Therefore, what's the there, therefore? Because we will all be resurrected from the dead. Therefore, encourage one another. That's John Gill's idea. Or we just go back to verse 9. Because we are appointed unto salvation from the Roman wrath to come, therefore encourage one another. We're going to be saved. I shouldn't say we're appointed from salva- to salvation from the Roman wrath. We're appointed to salvation from the wrath of the Jews who are persecuting us. We're saved from that. Therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. Now I said whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're alive or dead, when? At eighty seventy. Yeah, I think so. Some people, in fact, I got three commentators that say that Paul is saying whether we are awake or asleep at the second coming of Christ, we live together with him. John Gill, Adam Clark, Jameson Fawcett, and Brown. I hate to disagree with three eminent commentators like that, but how can that mean? Whether we, is that talking about Christians in general or is it talking about the Thessalonians? Well, you could argue either way, but it sounds like he's talking about the Thessalonians. They are not going to be awake. They're not going to be awake. They're not going to be living at Jesus' coming 2,000 plus years later. Well, since the whole context here, as I've made an argument, is 8070, I think it's referring to 8070. So whether we are alive or dead in 8070, we will live together with him. If you believe 1 Thessalonians 5 is talking about the end of the world, then I guess it's whether we're awake or asleep at the end of the world. Now, John Gill has an interesting idea. He says that whether we're awake in the natural, whether we've got our eyes open or not sleeping, or whether we're sleeping, doesn't matter what natural condition you're in, Christians are always safe. And I don't think that makes any sense at all. Gil suggests that. I don't know if he actually believes it. Now, one last point before we wrap it up. Notice that Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Now, what he does here is he encourages, he exhorts for further spiritual progress, but he gives credit for what has already been done. Now, he's done this through the book of First Thessalonians. Here's an example, First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 11. Paul says this, About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this. He, he says, I'm encouraging you to love your brothers, but hey, as a matter of fact, you're already doing it. You are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Paul gives us a good example of how we should exhort our fellow Christians. If they're doing good, always find something good to say about what they're doing. You're doing great, and then encourage them to do more. People are much more willing to take criticism and exhortation 
if you praise them a little bit beforehand. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we finished this eschatological portion of 1 Corinthians 5. And the last part of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is going to give some final exhortations and admonitions. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.